0: Howdy, howdy, howdy. <laughs> I don't know, is that what you would say in Arizona? Would you say howdy, howdy? Or am I maybe, being
1: Maybe, maybe a hundred
0: years ago. A hundred years ago, okay. <laughs> One, two... Hello, and welcome to The Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, and in this episode, as part of our State of the State season... We're traveling to Arizona. Even though it was one of the last states to enter the Union back in 1912, it's frequently one that immigrants enter when coming to the US. It's located in the southwest, with California and Nevada to the west, and Mexico to the south. Arizona is geographically poised to be at the center of America's immigration debate. In this episode, we're taking a deep dive into the political landscape of the Grand Canyon State, and we'll take a close look at how immigration is playing out in the US Senate race of this border state.
1: Okay, I'm going to play you a quick little clip of the Arizona State song.
0: I love you,
1: Arizona.
0: That's Denise Barron, my co host. Hi, Chris. Hi, Denise. Deserts and streams. The one word I would use to describe that would be rustic.
1: Yeah, right?
0: I feel like we should all be sitting around a campfire with marshmallows and s'mores and, and sort of the sun slowly dropping behind the mesa. With some around.
1: big red mountains in the background.
0: Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I think that for me in is what a lot of people who aren't from the U.S. think of the U.S. kind of old-timey kind of singing about the natural landscape and sort of hacking back to what did he say superstitions and old outlaws and things like that yeah it's a it's an interesting song
1: yeah and i mean and as we learned from from a couple people who we spoke to for this episode it's obviously it's even more than that but there still is that sort of bedrock
0: literally bedrock
1: yes (laughs) that's probably enough so tell me a little bit about what you've learned about arizona
0: well to give you a sense of the size of the state it's a bit bigger than the uk so think the uk plus a smaller european country like croatia or a little bit bigger than the netherlands if you want to drive east to west across the largely rectangular state it would take you about five or six hours depending on who's driving indeed and if you did that you might pass the larger city which is phoenix which has, with 1.6 million people, it's about the same size as Barcelona in Spain. The state bird of Arizona is the cactus wren, which makes sense given that a lot of the state is actually desert.
1: So you and I talked to a couple people for this episode who are very familiar with this state's landscape, both politically and geographically.
2: Oh, I I love this question. (laughs) So, when you think of Arizona, you're probably thinking of a giant cactus in the desert. And I would say that you're right, but only in the south.
0: That's Susanna Crockford.
2: So, I'm Dr. Susanna Crockford. I was at the LSE from 2011 until uh, December 2017. First, as a PhD student in the anthropology department. And secondly, I was in a research group. Can you want me to say what I do now as well? Um, So now I'm a a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Ghent in Belgium. So the south is the Sonoran Desert and you get the big saguaro cactuses, which has got the big one in the middle and the bits out the side, but they can actually grow many different arms. So they're actually a protected species as well. And then so the state gradually inclines upwards as you go north. So as you drive north on the main highway that goes from Phoenix to Flagstaff, Is the I-17 and you go up and up through the mountains and suddenly the saguaros get fewer and fewer. And then you get what's called prickly pear instead, which are these kind of flat paddle cactus that grow in little bushes on the ground with the big red berry fruit in the spring. And then when you get to the north, you're in the high desert. So that's also quite hot in the summer. But so Phoenix and Tucson, which are down in the desert area, you've got like 110 to 120 degrees Fahrenheit most days from now basically until september october it's unbearable
0: susanna has spent quite a bit of time living in and researching arizona
2: and then as you go north you get you get slightly cooler in the summer so sedona where i lived it would generally be about 100 to 110 in the summer months which is still to me it was horribly hot But then you get to Flagstaff, which is up in the San Francisco peaks, which are mountains. And going up from there, you've got the Colorado plateau until suddenly you get the grand Canyon, which is a great big 400 mile gap in the ground. And up there you get snow in the winter, thick snow. There is a a ski resort by Flagstaff called the Snow Bowl. Wonderful skiing, less snow now though in the winter because of the warming climate. So they actually make fake snow, which is slightly upsetting. Um, yeah. All right. So, I mean, technically, if we want to go right back to the beginning, I first went to Arizona when I was six months old. <laughs> But we lived there for a short time when I was a child, but more recently and probably more pertinently, I moved to Arizona in 2012 uh, in July to start my field work, uh, for my PhD in anthropology that was here at the Yellow Sea. And I was there for just under two years for my first period. I was in Sedona for the first period, which was just over a year. And then I was in uh, a very rural area near the Grand Canyon, which is called Valley. Um, but it, it's not really a place it, as such. It's just like an intersection with a gas station and a rock shop. And there's people who live in like trailers and some live in tents. Some of the RVs kind of scattered around the landscape for miles extending outwards from this intersection. And that whole area is called Valley. Um, so I was there for roughly I think, nine months at the end of my fieldwork. And then I would go back. So then my most recent period was from summer 2016 to January 2017 so i was there during the election i left 10 days before the inauguration of donald trump but i just kind of felt like there had been this this real shift from when i went there because when i went there it was really around the run-up to the election of barack obama and it was there was a whole different feel i mean even though arizona is always a little bit out there um politically in a, in a number of different ways i felt like the beginning of 2017 was like like this has really shifted in a way that i find quite troubling and amongst people i know well
0: So what are the key spaces where this debate over immigration is is happening in Arizona?
2: So I'd say obviously one space is the political institutions. Another space is obviously the border itself, you know. So we've got on the southern border of the U.S. is the most militarized border uh, between any two peacetime nations. The only border that has more... Just literal armaments on it is the border between North and South Korea, which have been at war since the 50s. So the border itself is patrolled by SUVs, it's patrolled by, you know, there's obviously the men on horses and the men with guns, there's, you know, watchtowers, there is uh, drones. There are sensors, both sensors on the ground and infrared sensors, so they can track people. And the border in Arizona in particular is incredibly hostile. So unlike California and and Texas, where you've got urban kind of transit points, in Arizona, it's mostly mountains and desert, and a large part actually goes through a Native American reservation.
0: Arizona is obviously so much more than its southern border. And yet its place on the map has had a big influence on its role in the immigration debate.
2: But it's incredibly hostile, and a lot of people who cross just die out there. There's an incredibly heartbreaking book, which I always refer people to. It's called The Land of Open Graves. (laughs) Yeah, and that really gives you a picture of what that particular space is like, that people die of exposure. You know, If you trip and fall and can't walk anymore, your group will just abandon you, and then you will die. And they say it's something like 24 hours uh, that the desert will strip a human body to bones. So often that's all that's found is is bones out there. So I think one if you're talking about illegal immigration or immigration in general, that's one of the spaces that it happens. But that's also only half of the story because we get a lot of fixation on illegal border crossings, especially in Arizona. But even in Arizona, that only accounts for, I think it's something like 40% of the people who are actually in the state who are without status. Most people actually enter legally with a visa, often a tourist visa or a student visa, and then they overstay which is much less dramatic, and it doesn't require a huge amount of, you know, police and technology on the border, and you can't take these pictures of you doing your job with your big gun, rounding up immigrants, because actually it's, you know, it's following paper trails. So another space is the bureaucracy itself. You know, who has papers, who can get papers, and why? So a lot of the uh, people without status that I knew in northern Arizona were not Central American or Mexican. They were British, they were Canadian, They were Japanese because these people are the ones who can get the visas. And they can blend in quite well. And they can live quite easily because no one's reporting them because they aren't the ones that look like an illegal immigrant in the kind of popular imagination of what an immigrant looks like. So before we go further into the immigration debate, we need to zoom
1: out. There's a major U.S. Senate race heating up in Arizona this year. And it's getting tons and tons of national attention, given how important control of the Senate will be after this year's midterm elections. So I spoke with someone on the ground in Arizona to get a better sense of how this race is shaping up. And which time zone are you joining us from right now? (laughs)
3: Um, so I'm on Arizona time, which is its own time zone, because Arizona is the one state that does not observe daylight savings time. So we are technically um, normally on Mountain Standard Time, but right now we're on Pacific Standard Time because of the daylight savings thing. So it is 8.53 a.m. where I am. And that's Antonia Farzan. Sure. Um, my name's Antonia Farzan, and I'm a staff writer at the Phoenix New Times. And what's your usual beat? What do you cover? Um, I cover politics, civil rights, immigration, a little bit of everything um i'm a reporter on the news side so jumping into the
1: election and the the political landscape, can you tell me about the the lay of the land politically in arizona like what's what's the recent political history like there?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So Arizona is a red state that's been primarily electing Republicans for the past um, couple of decades, but it is on the verge of becoming a blue state. Um, With the 2016 election, a lot of people thought that was gonna happen. It obviously didn't. Um, So the big question is, will it be 2018 when Arizona switches over to electing Democrats? Will it be 2020 when there's a presidential election? Um, Will it take even longer? So just looking at it by the numbers right now, you have a million registered Democrats and you only have about 200,000 more registered Republicans and the number of independent voters who aren't with any party is actually equivalent to the number of Republicans. So you see a lot of people um, kind of trying to win over those voters. So in 2016, Donald Trump
1: won Arizona?
3: He did, yeah. Was that a
1: pretty pretty solid win? But not
3: by as big a margin. No, it was actually not um, as large a margin as you saw in some other conservative states like Wyoming. Um, it was just really by a couple of points. Um, and if you look at who represents us in Congress, you'll see um, really the divide because you have some very progressive Democrats from Phoenix and from Tucson which are the main urban areas um, where you tend to have a large minority population. Then once you get out into the suburbs um, where you have a wealthier white population, um, that's where you start seeing the more conservative representatives coming in um, and also to a smaller extent in rural areas, although that's a mix because you also have Native American reservations, which tend to vote for Democrats. Um, So right now it's really just a question of numbers and demographics. I mean, younger voters, are disproportionately more likely to be people of color and also more likely to be Democrats. And then you have an older contingent who are the ones who turn out to vote, who are, tend to be white and tend to be conservative. And they're the ones who have been dominating elections um, up until this point. So looking specifically at the U.S. Senate race in
1: Arizona, how important is that election in the midterms this year?
3: It's hugely important on the national level, um, since it's looked at as one of the seats where there's the likelihood that it could flip from a Republican to a Democrat holding the seat, which would change the balance of the Senate and allow Democrats to regain power. So we've been seeing a ton of outside money, um, a ton of outside political operatives, and also just a ton of national media coming in to Arizona um, to focus on this race specifically. Um, On the ground, I wouldn't say that's necessarily translated yet. I mean, a lot of people who I just have casual conversations with, um, if they're not personally involved in politics or, you know, kind of people who follow it for fun, um, they aren't necessarily clear on who the candidates are yet and haven't made up their minds who they're going to be voting for. We're not yet at the point where you're seeing, you know, people with signs on their front lawns or that kind of thing. Um, And we haven't seen a ton of FaceTime from those candidates yet.
2: Okay, so I like Jeff Flake, and that's funny, because when I first moved to uh, Arizona, he was, it was his election. He was running for the Senate state as the junior senator, and I didn't like him at all. I was like, ugh, typical Republican.
0: Again, that's Susanna Crockford.
2: Um, so one of the interesting things about Arizona that a lot of people don't realize is that one of the most dominant religions, especially in the North, is uh, the Church of the Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church. Jeff Flake is a Mormon, um, just like Mitt Romney, in fact. Um, so... He came from this very long line of Mormon politicians. So when you look at especially some of the northern and eastern towns, they are founded by Mormons. Their entire political infrastructure is controlled and run by Mormons. So Jeff Flake very much has his home constituency in the state. So I think he's actually, he was fairly solid in his support up until the election of Donald Trump. And then he stood, I don't want to say he stood against him, but he at least peeked his top of his head above the parapet a little and took a few stands to say I disagree with what's going on and I think a lot of that really came from his beliefs and his background as a Mormon that you know so Mormons are very invested in the idea that you should be civil and that you should be friendly and you should be courteous and that even if you disagree with someone that's not a reason to treat them badly and obviously Donald Trump is the opposite of all of that you know he insults people all the time you know. And so I think for Jeff Flake, it was a moral standpoint and a moral issue to stand up and say, actually, I'm not OK with this. And not just the civility issue, but also I think he very much saw it as a degradation of the democratic institutions that certain things that Donald Trump had done were really undermining like the independence of the judiciary and the independence of the FBI. And these are really serious issues. So he hasn't been there very long, basically. I mean if you compare him to John McCain, John McCain's been there for like three decades or something. So no one was expecting Jeff Flake to suddenly stand down. And if this was like business as usual, I don't think he would have. Like I think he had the support. It's just because he'd stood against Trump, suddenly he didn't and he was facing challenges from the right, the most notable being Kelly Ward. Okay. And who who are the contenders at this point? Who are the candidates? So I'll start with the Democratic
3: side. Um we have Kirsten Cinema, um, who is likely to get the Democratic nomination. Um she does have a primary challenger, um, who, Deidre Boot, who does not have prior political experience, and is seen as something of a fringe candidate, so she hasn't been able to really bring in um the national endorsements and the money like Kirsten Cinema has. Um so I think it's safe to say it'll be Kirsten Cinema versus a Democrat. I'm sorry, versus whoever the Republican is, um, and that's been pretty well established at this point.
0: So who's Kirsten Cinema aside from being the likely Democratic nominee, who is she, and what does she represent?
3: So let me back up and just say that Kirsten Cinema um, is a Congresswoman currently. Um, she's one of the most conservative members of Congress who is also a Democrat, um, according to. 538, which tracks some of the stuff. She votes with the president half the time. Right, the Nate Silver website. Um, yeah, 538 is a data tracking website, and they found that she votes with the president about half the time. In a lot of ways, um, she almost resembles a moderate Republican. Then, over on the Republican side, you have three candidates, and that's where you have the really competitive primary. Um, the first to declare was Kelly Ward, who's a former state senator who previously tried to be a primary challenger to Senator John McCain, and she is um, she was kind of coming at him from the right. She is very conservative, um, very hardline on immigration and border security, and uh, has really tried to align herself with President Trump um, in every possible way, including having. A lot of people who used to be part of his circle come out here and stump for her. Um, then you have Martha McSally, who was next to join in the race. She is a congresswoman who has been representing um, parts of southern Arizona. Um, it's a swing district, including parts of Tucson, which is very liberal, and also rural areas where you have more conservative ranching communities and a military base, um, so as a result, she had a reputation for being probably the most moderate Republican representing Arizona, um, but the election has kind of pushed her to the right, um, since she's now running to represent the whole state instead of just Tucson um, and southern Arizona. And then lastly, the wild card candidate is Joe Arpaio, the former sheriff of Maricopa County, who was voted out in 2016 and is um, nationally famous for the human rights abuses that went on in his jails, as well as the fact that um, he cost the county a lot of money in lawsuits because he just refused to stop racially profiling people um, and have his deputies stop racially profiling people in traffic stops. Um, So that led to him being voted out, but he'd been talking for years about running for some kind of higher office um, since he was always very popular here. Um, Everyone kind of thought it wasn't going to happen. He definitely is on the older side for running for the Senate at this point. Um, But he surprised everyone by joining the race and has been running kind of an unconventional campaign. Um, He's really a single issue candidate. And that one issue is immigration.
0: So I know that name, Joe Arpaio. Why have I seen that name in the news?
3: Right. Yes. He got a presidential pardon um, last I guess it was last summer yeah which was hugely controversial um when it happened here um definitely led to a lot of you know people protesting just a lot of frustration with the president especially since it happened um just barely a month after he'd been charged with contempt of court um, for violating the court order that basically said you cannot racially profile minorities in traffic stops
1: does Does President Trump have a favorite in the Republican primary? Has he sounded off on this race?
3: Well, each of the candidates on the Republican side would like to think that they are his favorite. Um, He has not. um, The expectation, from what we've heard, is that he'll wait until the primary and then support whoever wins that election. Um, But definitely, each of the candidates has been playing up their connection. Um, When Martha McSally declared her video announcement featured, um, President Trump's c- talking about my friend Martha McSally, um, even though she'd been kind of not sure if she was going to even support him in the 2016 election and had spoken out about some of the um, offensive remarks he made that were captured on the Access Hollywood tape, um, then Kelly Ward definitely has been um, playing that up, definitely bringing a lot of his advisors out here, getting them on her team. Um, trying to have a big presence when there have been Trump rallies. And Arpaio, of course, has the pardon um, in that relationship with Trump. Um, And he said that his reason for running for Senate is basically just to rubber stamp anything that Trump does um, on any of the issues. He'll be on the same side as him.
1: So looking specifically at um, an issue that that that's not only controversial in the country, but also particularly in Arizona as a border state. How has immigration influenced this race so far?
3: Yeah, that's always um, a huge issue in any election here. And one of the main ways we see it is how um, I'd point to Martha McSally and how she's been pushed to the right since she started running to Senate. Um, So when she was representing Southern Arizona in a more more of a swing district um, that had the potential to elect a Democrat in the next cycle. Um, she had talked about how the government had an obligation to DACA recipients, um, which for any international listeners who aren't familiar, um, those are people who were brought to the country, um, at a young age as usually as children, um, sometimes even as babies and who do not have legal citizenship, um, so Martha McSally had basically talked, about, she had been co-sponsoring a bill that would have led to a path to, uh, to citizenship for those individuals. Oh, really? hmm Oh, wow. And she had a video on her site where she was really talking about how it was the right thing to do. She had sent a letter to House Speaker Paul Ryan saying that um, the government really owed it to, the, uh, to these young people. And then um, the video recently was removed for her site. Um, She has removed herself as one of the co-sponsors of the bill and now says that she will be voting against it. And she's now supporting a much more conservative solution, um, which I think is called the Securing America's Future Act or something like that. Um, So we're really seeing her do a complete 180 on the immigration issue now that she is running to represent the whole state um, rather than just her particular district. And you see that a lot um, with Arpaio, I mean, his views on immigration are extremely conservative. He said with DACA recipients that they should be deported back to their home countries and then be allowed to apply for U.S. citizenship from there and be fast-tracked for citizenship from Mexico or from wherever they're from. so that's kind of what's really driving the discussion at this point is kind of hardline views like that.
0: So it's clear this is having a massive impact on the political landscape, not only in this election for the US Senate, but also for the country at large. But in what other ways is the immigration debate important?
2: Yeah, I think I remember when I was last doing this, I was like, guys, watch the census, and then it like all blew up last week. And I was like, aha. <laughs> 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 yeah. So if you, if you ask For someone's citizenship on the census, you will decrease the turnout amongst immigrant communities. This has been well documented. They have not asked about citizenship since, I don't know, like the 1960s. It's asked in something else, which is like the Community Value Survey. So the data is there about citizenship. You don't need it from a data standpoint. It's purely there, I think, to make a political point that they want... On the census, everyone to say whether they are a citizen or not. And if you are a non-citizen, I mean, even if you're there legally and you're in this climate where you're facing raids and you're facing discrimination and someone comes to your door and starts asking you about your immigration status, you're probably not going to respond. In fact, you're probably not even going to answer the door to begin with because, you know, these communities are also reading this news. And I think there's already been some preliminary data to suggest that actually, yes, it's going to decrease turnout because these people are already saying, we're not going to respond to the census. And the US census is a huge undertaking. And if you are doing something, asking a question that is going to decrease turnout, especially amongst Hispanic communities, and the other one big one is Muslim American communities because they also feel under threat for, you know, quite quite obvious reasons, um, then you are going to affect two main things. One is federal funding of services. So you will not get the same amount of funding for services if you don't have everyone in your population counted. And you are going to affect the congressional districts. So one of the reasons why gerrymandering is an issue is because after the 2010 census, the Republicans basically got a big red pen and drew districts around Republican areas. And this has come up, for example, recently in Pennsylvania. The Supreme Court, I think, ruled against it. And this, you know, if you undercount populations that historically vote Democrat, then you are going to get congressional districts redrawn in Republican favor. So I think there's also a fairly transparent partisan motive behind this. Right?
1: Well... Thank you so much for joining us. That is a fascinating
3: look at this race. Yeah, thank you. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you.
0: Arizonians go to the polls on August twenty eighth, 2018 to vote in their primary election. After that, we'll know who the Democratic and Republican candidates will be. And then they'll have a two-month sprint until the general election for the midterms on the 6th of November. So that's it for this episode of The Ballpark. Thank you to Antonia Frazan and Susanna Crockford. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, with contributions from co-host Chris Gilson, that's me, and also with help from the LSE's annual fund. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rear rangers a Seattle-based Gypsy Jazz Band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. Son fantasticos. That means they're fantastic in Spanish. We love to hear from you. Let us know what you think about the show by emailing us at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. Or send us a tweet at LSE underscore ballpark. And tell your friends about us, especially if they're from the Grand Canyon State. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast don't reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. In our next episode from the ballpark, we're heading slightly to the north and a bit to the east, to Tennessee.
1: Okay, so you're never, never, never going to guess the state fruit of Tennessee.
0: It's not the peach, because that's Georgia. Let's say pawpaw. It's a tomato. Tomato. Okay. (laughs) Really? Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Play ball.
1: Okay, so looking at the the famous Tennesseans. Mm. There's one that jumps out to me who would be l- well-known to our listeners. Oh,
0: yeah?
1: Davy Crockett.
0: Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett. Okay. The he,
1: Coons hat.
0: And he was a real person, wasn't he?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. Not like Johnny Appleseed.
0: Or Casey Jones.
1: Or maybe Johnny Appleseed is a real person.
0: I do know. They're probably all based on something, aren't they?
1: Yeah.